0: Welcome to the Vermantawana Podcast. I am your host, Eli Harrington. The Vermantawana Podcast is where we elevate the state. Coming to you from the Green Mountains here in beautiful Vermont, we're talking cannabis culture, cannabis community, business, entrepreneurship, legalization, medical marijuana, and of course, hemp and CBD. Stay tuned. We've got a great episode today. I invite you to join us and elevate the state at Vermontana.com and at vermantawana on social media. Let's go. Welcome back to our returning listeners and happy 2020. And hello to our new listeners. Excited to have new people joining us, subscribing. If you're not familiar, if you're new to this, what I like to do is usually talk about a little bit of news. Uh, I'm having extra special segment from January through May. This is a Vermont political update. It won't be in every update, uh, in every single episode. Right, But uh, we start with the national news. We'll talk about some political updates. And then we've got our feature. And our featured interview today is with Andrew McEwing. Amazing guy. I'll give you the full rundown, but I am going to guarantee you this. I guarantee you this. You are going to laugh out loud and you're going to well up. Right? I don't know if you're going to shed an entire tear. But you're going to both laugh and probably cry, depending on how you define cry in this episode. If that doesn't happen, if you subscribe and you listen to that interview with Andrew and you don't both laugh out loud and shed a tear listening to him talk about how he, as a red hat wearing uh, farmer from Franklin County, military veteran, someone who thought in his words medical marijuana was bullshit has come all the way around and how we've become good friends. One of the best interviews we've ever done, extremely powerful, very excited to share that with you. Our first national story comes to us courtesy of Marijuana Moment. If you're not on Marijuana Moment, check it out. It's the best place to get congressional updates, national news, they keep expanding, are doing amazing work. Lindsay Bartlett, experienced cannabis journalist and writer, uh, submitted a report in Marijuana Moment That talked about both Jerry Jones and Tom Brady have been asked about cannabis in the last, uh, in the recent past, in the last few weeks. We've got the Super Bowl, aka the big game, coming up. I don't think I'm allowed to call it the Super Bowl. The big game is coming up, so we're going to be talking a lot about football. And as we know, uh, cannabis is still a banned substance. As Marijuana Moment also reported, uh, a panel just came out saying that CBD, they thought, is mostly hype. So um, two steps forward, one step back. But... One of the things that Marijuana Moment did a great job of was embedding the audio. So you can go listen to Jerry Jones talk about medical marijuana, and you can also listen to Tom Brady's silky smooth voice right here. Yeah, I know there's been talks about that in the NFL as well, and I think the stigma is being removed, and hopefully they're doing a lot of research into whatever benefits there may come from it. So
1: I don't know enough about it. I'm sure a lot of experts out there that could weigh in, but these are the signs of the times, and things are changing, and... You now progress is good. Tommy, good luck
0: on Sunday, and we will talk to you on Monday. Meanwhile, out on the campaign trail, it's worth giving people sort of a reminder. We had uh, Joe Biden and Michael Bloomberg double down on their anti-cannabis reform stances most recently. Bernie had come out and made a splashy announcement um, and sort of reiterated kind of his support Uh, which he did not do in 2016, should note. Tom Steyer, who's that? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, Came out and said that he supports decriminalization and legalization nationally. Uh, But it is a good time to remind people that Elizabeth Warren um, is somebody who's got an A grade from normal, is somebody who's co-sponsored legislation. And so, you know, me personally, um, I voted for Bernie in 2016. I don't mind telling people this. I, I wrote him in. Um, rather than participate with either the other candidates, but Uh, I got to say that going back and doing a little bit of research, it's really worth people taking a look at track records. Um, Elizabeth Warren is somebody who is not a big fan of cannabis early on, uh, but has come quite a long way. So when you're looking at all the candidates, this is an issue that's going to come up more and more on the national campaign trail. I encourage you guys again, check out Marijuana Moment. They've done all the best reporting on this and have it all in one place. It's a great place to go get caught up, especially on the candidates. Our third news story is regional for those of us that live here in the Northeast. Regional politics, a lot of stuff is happening. I just want to run down each state real quick. We're going to get into Vermont in more detail with a very in-depth Vermont political insider update. Uh, Some of you might end up skipping past that. Some of you are here just for that, and the rest of this is kind of just icing on the cake, right? So let's look around the New England region. We've got Connecticut, where top lawmakers have again signaled uh, that they're going to look at tax and regulate this year. Now, they've been building up their medical program in Connecticut New Jersey has been talking about it quite a bit, and New York is obviously the prize. So Connecticut's seeing the money, um, and it's been a few years, but the infrastructure is kind of being built for them to really move forward. So 2020, I think they might end up being the New England state that does the most. We'll see. In Rhode Island, meanwhile, they're talking about a state control system. Uh, Now, Rhode Island is a place that we thought was gonna legalize before Vermont was gonna tax and regulate right along with us, uh, or before us here in Vermont, Uh, and they've really been dragging their feet and slower than a lot of people had expected. They're now discussing a state controlled system, much like states like Vermont and many others that have state liquor stores, in which the state would be the retailer. Now, we have talked about this in Vermont and the reason it did not Uh, go far or it was kind of a non-starter because of federal prohibition the idea was that the state could not be involved in distributing a federally prohibited federally illegal substance now i'm not sure what the legal argument in new uh sorry in rhode island is that might negate that but that's what's being discussed new hampshire behind the times as always except when it comes to presidential primaries they're talking about decriminalization and legalization And we'll see. We wish our best to our friend Matt Simon from the Marijuana Policy Project over there. Really fighting the good fight in a state that, uh, you know, loves the freedom to kill itself and not the freedom to legalize weed. So, uh, elsewhere in New England, Massachusetts um, is making big news in part because of how licensing is playing out on the ground. This is something I've been ranting about on Twitter and with lawmakers in Vermont about kind of when you say you want to prioritize social equity or economic equity licenses, um, what does that do when you actually have the alternative of fast money through established big companies, corporations, multi-state operators, right? So Massachusetts made a really big deal out of their attempts to really prioritize social equity. And they kind of came up with a formula, but it wasn't super well-defined up front. Of how they wanted to make sure that people who were minorities that had been negatively impacted. And people who were small business owners, people who lived in the communities that were going to be operational. Uh, that these people could get licenses. So they said, we'll figure this out. We're going to create a system of priorities. We're going to make sure economic empowerment um, and social equity licensees get to participate. Lo and behold, what happens as the Wu-Tang Clan tells us, cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money dollar-dollar bills y'all what that means is that once the tills open right once a dispensary opens for business and that dispensary and the state are now making money from legal cannabis sales that's where the administrative focus goes keeping that money flowing in now licensing is still an issue and they need to license people quickly right well who's easier to license a small micro business you know that doesn't have a million dollars in the bank or a multi-state operator that can point to a dispensary in Pennsylvania they've operated and says, we've got unlimited money in the bank. We paid off the locals. We're ready to go. Boom. So in Massachusetts, we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs, small business owners, minority applicants who are pushing back against the state commission saying, Hey, you said that we were going to be able to participate. We submitted our paperwork. We did our jobs. The licensing board is not doing theirs. Some of these people have waited 600 days to get a response. Some of these people have been paying rent on buildings, you know, that are not allowed to operate for months, if not over a year, in the in the instance of some of this. And I'll point back to uh, the Boston Globe. Um, I believe it was Felicia Gans who did this reporting, or Naomi Martin, one of the two. Um, but there's a story in the Boston Globe and a whole series of reporting. It's kind of becoming thematic with people interrupting com- control board meetings and saying, "Hey, nothing happens until we get our licenses. We've been waiting. We've done our job. We follow the rules." So. We're watching that play out because Massachusetts really made some waves as far as their attempts um, to empower social equity minority applicants and what we're finding is that uh, that is hard when you're putting that up against the ease um, and the financial incentive of having large corporations multi state operators come in and just open up shop. So We'll see. This is something for other states, especially us here in Vermont, to be wary of. But encourage you to check out that news happening around the region. In the meantime, let's go hear a quick ad, and then let's get into our Vermont Political Insider Update and our featured interview for our late January 2020 edition. Do you guys hear that? That's the sound of prime advertising time. I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to hear this Political Insider Update. It's valuable. It took me, Eli... Hours and hours of time to collect and get this information together. This is the interesting stuff. So you, a Vermont cannabis company, CBD, head shop, online, ancillary service, this is where you want to be advertising. You, somebody who's listening to this podcast, this is where you want to be finding out about events, about deals, about discounts, about classes, all of this good stuff. So we're in this together in this craft cannabis media scene and this little podcast so I want to encourage you guys, help me spread the word, vermontawana at gmail, at vermontawana. Let's get some advertisers in here. You guys know that I'm very loyal, stay true to my friends, and have a lot of loyal day one followers. So we're going to get more of this out, and I suspect we'll be full up with advertising by the next week. But in the meantime, I created a special one just for you guys. Uh, this is so ridiculous it might become a real product, but here's a sample of what we can do with some advertising. Yay! Yeah. This episode of the Vermont Awana podcast is brought to you by CBD's Nuts. That's right, CBD's Nuts, the new delicious, nutritious snack from Vermont You're going to love to CBD's Nuts. With over 100 milligrams of Vermont-sourced CBD and an assortment of cashews, almonds, peanuts, CBD's Nuts make for a great snack. Bring it with you on the road, healthy, nutritious. They also make a great gift and over 100 milligrams of CBD. Make sure to CBD's nuts today. Item number one is the legislative update. So S54 is the name of the tax and regulate bill. Last year, in 2019, it passed the Vermont Senate. It is currently in the House, where it is scheduled to be discussed by the Ways and Means and Appropriations Committees. Now, these are the two, quote-unquote, money committees. They're going to discuss how much revenue we'll expect from this bill and how much money it's going to cost to set it up. That second question is very critical to Governor Scott uh, and many other policymakers. Right now, this bill is being discussed in other House committees to get input. House Agriculture Committee, the Natural Resources Committee, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. So they're trying to build consensus. They will theoretically uh, go and amend this bill, um, talk to leadership, and see if it will be pushed forward. There is nothing scheduled presently for it to be on the House Ways and Means or Appropriations Committee. Uh, We expect that to happen at earliest, probably the second week in February. So stay on top of that. Item number two, it is election year 2020, and we have had some big announcements dominating the early political news. Now, the 2020 campaign at the top of the ticket, we've got Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, who has been a proponent for cannabis reforms for 20 plus years. He's very well known as being out front and historically correct on this issue, Uh, and it served him well politically as he is the lieutenant governor, very popular statewide, has survived some tough elections. Republican Governor Phil Scott has been an opponent of cannabis reforms. He did let legalization take effect after vetoing it the year before in 2017. Um, However, with Lieutenant Governor in the race, uh, you have to think that cannabis will be more prevalent of an issue. So we've already seen the Governor Phil Scott talk about using potential tax revenues to fund after school programs. But this has all been really abstract uh, and I think we can trust him not to immediately start supporting this and make this a campaign plank. That doesn't mean there's not a way for him to get on board with some other moderate reforms or incremental changes, uh, but the aerial impact of cannabis on this election And with it being an election year, we've got a lot of other Vermont politicians who are trying to metaphorically level up. Whether that's Senator Tim Ash in Vermont running for lieutenant governor, uh, whether that's Chittenden County Representative Dylan Giambattista running for state senate, it's going to be campaign season for everybody. And I think what that means is that we might actually see less cannabis discussion and more focus on some of these other sexier issues. There's a youth climate lobby in the statehouse every Friday. These kids are begging governors and representatives to do something about climate change. Uh, We've seen discussion of livable wage uh, already become sort of heated and seeing some fractures. So there's a lot of work to be done politically on other issues that are not cannabis, and we see that taking up a lot of the legislature's time. We'll know in the next two weeks from leadership and from the House Speaker and from the actions of these committees uh, what we can expect and if what kind of action we might see. Stay tuned, S54 is the bill, vermantawanna.com has a write-up and the link to the full text. Our third and final news update from the Vermont State House has to do with the Agency of Agriculture and the Hemp Program. Uh, we've seen the Agency of Agriculture and the Senate and House Agriculture Committees work really effectively in implementing hemp legislative changes, updating the program along the way. It's grown 10x from about 100 registrants to about 1,000 registrants, just growers alone, in the last two years. So we've seen these agency, this agency work together with the legislature. And the legislation that we're talking about right now is S-194. You've seen this on the Vermont on Instagram page. Senator John Rogers, himself a Vermont hemp farmer uh, from up there in the Northeast Kingdom in Glover, he has filed a bill that would... Uh, basically give people legal standing to sue people for bad seed. So like many other hemp farmers, he had issues with seed that was supposed to be feminized. It was not. Germination rates were not as advertised. And so this bill would at least give Vermont farmers some legal recourse. Now, this is potentially a big deal nationally, as this is an issue that we've seen more and more of, and we're seeing companies that are making genetic patents. So, uh, states getting into the business of legislating and regulating seed sales for hemp and cannabis, kind of a big deal. Stay on top of that, S-194. I am so excited for today's featured interview. It is with Mr. Andrew McEwing. Andrew is somebody who, out of all the amazing, incredible, diverse people I've met through cannabis, he is one of the most unique, and his cannabis story is so unique. This is a guy who, as you'll hear, he's got a Vermont accent, and you know he lives in Franklin County. He's a farmer, he's a veteran, he's somebody who, um, I jokingly say during our interview, him and I wear different red hats, right? um and he's somebody who's become a great friend through cannabis and had somebody whose life has been changed you're gonna hear his story and i guarantee through our interview i guarantee this if you're a subscriber i will give you your money back if this does not happen and if you are not a subscriber become one based on this guarantee i guarantee that during our about half hour conversation you're gonna both well up and maybe even shed a tear and laugh out loud because andrew Is just such a practical pragmatic guy Um, a lot of people have relatives you know sort of like Andrew who are just straightforward straight shooters and you know I love talking with somebody who was raised in a conservative background and as he will tell you hated marijuana he thought medical marijuana was bullshit okay and now this is a guy who um, is like a girlfriend. You know, he comes to all of our cannabis events. His life has been changed. And most significantly, we talk about opiates and opioid use disorder. Andrew's a guy who, um, you know, has been an AA and has been clean for the last 15 years. And he talks about that and his struggles with that substance, but also talks about being somebody who uses opiates for pain, for pain management, and literally was taking a lethal dose. Okay, of both morphine um, and Oxycontin, and somebody for whom cannabis has been a life changer and has dramatically reduced the amount of opiates that he takes. Now, he never had to struggle with opiate addiction, in part because he went through so many other things, and you'll hear him talk about that, but using THC, using medical marijuana with opiates has allowed him to reduce his intake of morphine from 150 milligrams down to 60. Okay, so um, Andrew's just an amazing guy, an incredible friend, and as you'll hear he's got some really wild wisdom about how kind of learning about cannabis and medical marijuana, something that he didn't want to do, had to be forced to do in an intervention uh, with his doctor so he would try it, how it changed his life and really changed his perception on, on kind of politics and what he had been told and why he's such an amazing advocate uh, to have as a guy who really values and appreciates medical cannabis. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, my very good friend, amazing medical advocate, farmer, grower, uh, medical cannabis patient, Mr. Andrew McEwing. Welcome. Tell us who you are. I'm Andrew McEwing
1: and, uh, I grew up here in Vermont. Uh, I was originally born in Anchorage, Alaska, um, another legal state. And, uh, you know, I grew up a normal Republican household. My dad had a small business; it was, um, and uh, we grew up all working for the business. Um, in my family, we we were, uh, you know, we didn't do drugs. It was it was like we were a non-drug family. We, you know, McEwen's just didn't smoke pot. You know, <laughs> right? It, it and was,
0: we should say, how old how old are you right now? In 2020, well, I'm,
1: 50, I'm 52.
0: Okay. And okay. Is, so you're not quite a baby boomer, right? You know, but you came up in kind of the '80s, '80s and '90s. Absolutely. You know, really. I love the '80s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and you—I've seen pictures at your—I've seen pictures at your house of fresh face you as a uh, mm-hmm. as a CB, right? Yeah. Um, so were you guys a military a military family too? My, or? my
1: sister's in the military, and I was in the military. But uh, my family—my my father originally worked for the FAA. And his main passion was airport engineering. And uh, we came back here to take over my grandfather's company. Uh, He had a small oil company that uh, was home heating oil. And it was just my cousins and and my uncle. We were were a tight family. Um, You know, I didn't get babysitters. I went with cousin Jamie delivering oil after school. I went with Uncle Dick. To work on furnaces after school, I went with Uncle Uncle. Jim. Everybody was an uncle, you know. <laughs> and, and everybody was an uncle or a cousin or somehow related. Right. And those that didn't, you know what I mean, were like, oh, we got to take the brat, you know.
0: <laughs> right. And this is up in this in Franklin County, right? No, this is down in here in Essex. We're down. Oh, okay.
1: And uh, I moved to Franklin when I was when I was uh, in my thirties or early thirties. I've been up. I've been up in Franklin and Bakersfield for uh, 21 years.
0: Okay, but well, you grew up more here in uh County. I grew in up Chain here. More yeah, right right right. here at Essex at the Lang Lang yeah. barns. Thanks to the Langs. The uh, what was it like in Vermont? You know, at that point in time, and you know, kind of were you like Vermont's always got a reputation as sort of being a hippie haven, right? But, yeah. You know you sounds like you didn't really fit that mold in here in the eighties. It was probably kind of a different time. And you guys being a, you know, family that was maybe conservative, had business, oh,
1: absolutely. you
0: know, what was this, what was the scene like? And, you know, did you, uh, did you ever, you know, smoke pot in high school no, or I never did.
1: I, I, you know, I always had the adage that, you know, McHughies don't, don't do drugs. And, you know, we could have all the pills and painkillers from the doctor that, you know, that, that we, we wanted, we just, you know, and I smoked cigarettes I just didn't, uh, I didn't smoke pot and, but you know, my family, did, it was all right to drink. And as long as you got up the next day and went to work and took care of your family, having a couple drinks was all right. Unfortunately, I was an alcoholic by the time I was 21. Wow. The drinking age was 18 back then. And, you know, I got you know, the, the three or four weeks before I went into the Navy, I got into my first DWI car accident. And it was at a time where I was going to the Navy and they made it go away before I could go into the Navy. And, uh, you know, it was, it was like that the whole time. I mean, uh, it was. Um,
0: it was just kind of accepted, you know, in the, yeah. you know, I mean, you just kind of get fucked up and that's what young guys do, right? Yeah. You know, what you I mean? know? it was like I had to drive
1: home. I was too drunk
0: to walk, <laughs> you know. And times have changed so
1: much since then, uh, thank God. You know, I've been sober now. Uh, I've been in AA for thirty years, but I've been uh, sober for fifteen of the uh, fifteen years uh, consecutively this time.
0: Congratulations! Uh,
1: out of the last thirty years, I've had uh, twenty-five years of sobriety, off and on. And uh, you know, in in AA, you know, smoking pot was a nay, nay, nay.
0: You know, it was. <laughs> Right, nothing. No, except cigarettes and coffee. I guess. Yeah,
1: cigarettes and coffee you know, were the were the two, uh, the, the, you know, caffeine and cigarettes, and where were the uh, were the staple. You know, we we didn't even eat; we just drank coffee and smoked cigarettes. You know. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you got out of the navy, and then you know, what'd you end up getting into as far as your work? Did you follow in the you know the yeah. family business, or
1: I, I ended up going to culinary school after I got out of the navy. And I got a degree in culinary arts, and I got a degree in psychology, and uh, from Champlain, and um, I ended up uh, getting uh, getting married. Um, it was it was an alcoholic '80s lifestyle, early '90s, late '80s lifestyle. You ran hard, and it was it was tough. Um, you know, drugs were just you know there was a lot of cocaine. I remember back in the high school. In high school. In high school. But we never did. I never did it. You know, I was, it was drugs. And, uh, you know, I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, just, you know, I I bought into just saying no, this is your brain on drugs. All those campaigns I brought, I bought into. Yep. And never smoked. I never knew what smoking was about. I never, you know, I thought it was just a way, you know, the hippies could, could, Get smoked up without getting bothered and harassed and I was like you know if they get a job they wouldn't smoke
0: and you know right you right know? I mean you're describing kind of like you know almost like the uh the bad guy stereotype in an 80s movie right yeah, and you're like absolutely. you losers get a you know get a job and you're like the the jock or the car guy or yeah. the you know whoever and uh you know it's funny to imagine that now but I think what people who are younger don't realize is that now there's not as much stigma around being a stoner? No, you know. So. But if you look at a movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, right? Right. Jeff Spicoli's a loser. He's an right. idiot. You know, like yeah. he's he's a bad guy in that movie. And uh, it seems like that's kind of how how things were here, and it's easy to understand why. You know, you would you would fall into that mindset because I got to imagine a lot not a lot of people in in the Navy, and then not a lot of people in culinary school. Right. You know. Although I don't know, kitchens are kind of notorious for, for partying.
1: Well, when I was in the kitchens, I, you know, I had access to alcohol and that was my drug of choice was alcohol. You know, I was like, you know, one of my closest friends was my boss back then. And he fired me because I was such a drunk that he couldn't keep me on. And as soon as I got out of rehab, the next day he hired me back. He said, oh, you're sober. You need a sponsor and you need a job and I'll give you both. And it was taken care of. And, you know, smoking pot was never even a question, never even a desire, never even a thought, a second thought. I just didn't do it. It wasn't my thing. Right. Uh, Drinking was my thing.
0: Right. Well, and like you said, then in the, in the program, you Mm -hmm. know, AA is very anti, anti other substances, right? You know, total sobriety. So, um, you know, how do you come into, how do you come into contact with, with wheat. Well,
1: I was I was in a car accident, uh, 16, 17 years ago. I ended up breaking my back in three places, and then uh, along the way, uh, injuries from the navy. I had to have my knees replaced in nineteen in uh, two thousand fourteen, and uh, so I was on all kinds of opioids. The doctors were feeding me opioids, jar after jar after jar after jar, but I never became addicted to them. You know, I became dependent on it, but not addicted. I never ran out and I never felt like, oh, I only got two left. I never, it was never like that. I was always very mindful because of how much I was taking because I had an alcohol problem. I didn't want a drug problem.
0: Right. And you uh, were like a reluctant, you know, you didn't, if if you hadn't been in so much pain, you wouldn't have taken the pills at all. Oh, absolutely
1: not. You know what I mean? But But it was life or death. It was like, I was bed bound and I was in a wheelchair for a while um, due to my injuries, and, uh, you know, the painkillers, the opioids, and the morphine, the Percocet, and, you know, got me, got me, uh, up, and I was able to run my farm, um, back, uh, after the car accidents, I could no longer cook in the kitchens, because I couldn't stand up for long periods of time, and working in the kitchens, there's a lot of standing, and a lot of movement and yeah, just you're running around
0: or on your feet all the time,
1: just couldn't do it. And the painkillers weren't even helping me do with that. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do, um, for, for, for an income. So, um, I had 23 acres of land up in Bakerfield. So I started growing beef and that was a way of, of, uh, of keeping the, the, the pastures mode. And, uh, You know, we raised raised some extremely good beef. We were about seven grades above prime, seven to 10 grades above prime. And we were, you know, we were 650 a pound hanging weight, which was like, you know, twice the cost of of prime back then. Mm. And, you know, we we made a good living. And then when I couldn't no longer, you know, the animals were getting too big. They were, you know, 1,500, 1,800 pounds on the hook, you know, and you know, uh, they were dressing out at a thousand, eleven hundred pounds. And, um, you know, to get stepped on or to get pushed aside, it was really, was really, uh, was really dangerous to my back. And, um, so we made the, we, we made the decision to, to go into chickens and I started raising for, uh, a restaurant in St. Albans and, um, we were, we would grow, uh, Two, three hundred chickens a year, and then I, I, you know, uh, it got necessary to get into butchering chickens because I was spending all my money having them butchered. <laughs> so uh, we uh, we um, we bought butchering equipment and uh, got into that line of work, and we were butchering over a thousand birds a year, and um, it just it just worked out. Um, finally uh this opioid epidemic came around and the doctors weren't as free with the narcotics as they used to be and uh you know they were starting to talk about i was in more pain and i kept telling them to raise me raise me raise me you know in the beginning i was taking about 150 more uh milligrams of morphine and another 135 milligrams of oxycodone
0: how frequently my,
1: oh that was That was a day, that was the day supply. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I was, and I was functioning, I was fully functioning. I had been on it for 17 years. And, you know, I never, I never had that draw, but I was in pain still. And opioids only work so well, and then you have to increase, 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 increase. And um, I mean
0: those are crazy numbers talking about 100 milligrams of morphine and
1: 150 milligrams of morphine. Oh,
0: wow, daily. Daily. That's that was
1: insane. Um, you know, and I was asking the doctors to, to increase my to increase me. And they were like we can't, you know, you know, are you're at a lethal dose. I was like, "We mean I'm at a lethal dose." They were like, "If we gave your dose to a normal person it would kill." Them. And I and that kind of scared me. But, you know, and it was, I was like, well, you got to do something for me. And they were like, well, we can offer you medical marijuana. I was like, I'm not smoking that shit. I'm not going to be a druggie too. <laughs> and, uh, my wife and my doctor got together and along with my sponsor in, in AA, and they decided that I should try this and that I hadn't had a problem with the, uh, the opioids, I've been able to manage those, so I should uh, try the marijuana and see if that worked. And I was, I was reluctant. And I thought all those hippies just wanted to be, you know, get the state off their back.
0: You thought medical marijuana was bullshit. I, I
1: totally thought it was bullshit.
0: Yeah. I was
1: like, if it, if, it, if if medical marijuana was so great, I'm like, how come the pharmaceutical companies aren't all over it? How come the drug? How come the government hasn't made it legal? How come you know? And I was like. I was really in the dark. I was really, you know, I had uh, this one paradigm in my head of, of, of what marijuana was, and I was so wrong. You know what I mean? It was it was like the story that I had made up in my head about marijuana it wasn't based on fact, it was based on scare tactics from the 80s, to just say no, this is your brain on drugs, This. You know, the war against marijuana, the war against illicit drugs. And I was like, uh, I, I don't even want to try it, you know? And uh,
0: Yeah, that scene of that scene of having, you know, doctor, wife, sponsor come to you and have an intervention, yeah. you know, and like beg you to try weed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's quite a scene, like pretty unique yeah, experience, you know. It um, was. So what was the first thing, you know, do they, they take you out back and give you a joint or, Whoa. you know, put on a Led Zeppelin record or, like, what was the, <laughs> No, it was know. pretty
1: nonchalant. I went over to my, friend, uh, my, my friend's house, who's my sponsor, and he had been smoking. He has neuropathy in his feet, and he's been smoking for 60 years. Hmm. And I, I asked him, I said, do you have a joint or do you have a bowl or anything I can try? And he was like, he handed me a half a joint and said, knock yourself out. And I took two puffs, and I was pain-free. And I was like, oh, my God, it's a freaking miracle. And the first thing he's out of my mouth was, how much does it cost, and where do I get some? And and uh, my friend Walter was like, I can help you out with that. And, you know, we started buying from the dispensary, Walter and I. I wanted Walter to have a a, a a safe place to pick up his product, and I wanted a safe place to pick up my product. I was always worried about tainted marijuana, and and but the quality I was getting at the at the stores were really bad, and um, you know, and it was expensive, and I was like Walter's on on Social Security disability, and so am I because of my accidents, and. I was like, we can't afford this. We were spending three, four hundred bucks a month at the dispensary, and being a farmer, I was like, I should be able to grow this stuff. So I started growing, and uh, it helped out so much. Being around the plants lifted my 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 spirits up. Which when you're when you're when you're in a lot of pain, you tend to be down, and you tend to be in bed, and you tend to be grouchy, and you. But when I was caring for these plants, my 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 outward uh, my well my inward feelings were great. I was like, "Wow, I can't wait to see how much they grew today." And I go downstairs in the basement and water them and take pictures. And you know, it was it was you know caring for these plants were probably the biggest part of uh, doing the whole marijuana thing. And then. Uh, as I got into the marijuana, um, I needed less opioids. And I went back to my doctor. And I'm like, let's make a cut. And he was like, what? And I said, yeah, let's cut me back on the opioids. And he was like, nobody cuts back on opioids unless they're forced to. I said, well, I don't need as much. And uh, I cut back a third that day. And I did it with with, with relatively ease. And, uh, and the next year... I cut back another third, so right now I'm on two-thirds what I was taking, so I'm on 60 milligrams of morphine, and 90 milligrams of oxycodone, so I've cut it back considerable. Yeah. And I feel better, I'm not grouchy, my son says, Dad, you're not a dick when you're smoking. (laughs) You know,
0: and he's 21, so he must know. (laughs) Yeah, well, I need to get a young kid to say, right, especially your, uh, your son to give you that kind of credit. That's about as high praise as it gets, right? Yeah. You know, that's almost like him saying you're cool. Yeah. You know? You know? Yeah, the, uh, the plant therapy, you know, I know that's been such a cool part of legalization and even yeah. a lot of the hemp stuff is so many more people are appreciating it, you know, how much fun it is to grow. It is. You know, as a, uh, as a medicinal as a medicinal you know, sort of treatment for yourself and his therapy itself. The, uh, the question you hit on it though, you know, where do I buy it? How do I get it? Ending up growing for yourself. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, you are able to, you know, to function and at least do some gardening. Other people are more disabled, you know, and they have caregivers, there's still some expense and a learning curve for how to get it set up. So, mm-hmm. kind of, how do you learn how to grow? Or you just hop I, on YouTube and trial can, and error?
1: And I hopped on YouTube, and everything <laughs> I knew came from YouTube. And I watched these videos on how to how to uh, how to plant and how to take clones, and I watched these videos on how to how to fertilize. And you know, I went through the gamut of fertilizers. I started out with the ultra cheap stuff, and I, and then I and now I'm doing. Uh, roots organic which is fairly expensive but the product comes out so nice mm-hmm. and um you know when i when i when i when i think about growing a a a, a, a tent um i'm thinking about what strain do i want what strain is going to help me with my chronic pain right and what's where you know i want to i want to fairly strong indica and a, and a fairly strong sativa for the daytime and an indica for at night where I can sleep. and uh, you know, and I ended up, Walter was his severe pain, and I ended up with a girl that had 150 plates and screws in her head and couldn't take opioids. She was hit by a dump truck. And she was, she was...
0: Uh, this is your friend who I met yeah, before, too. Yeah, Brooke. Yeah.
1: And, you know, so... I started helping these people out because they were in chronic pain and you know, the, the, the companies, the, uh, the, the dispensaries have to grow for a wide, wide range of disabilities and symptom, you know, yeah. symptom alleviation. And I had, I can focus myself on pain management. And so I ended up growing for a couple of people. Um, you know, my, you know, my friend Dave, uh, he has chronic pain. And, you know, he was having a hard time sourcing his marijuana. He couldn't afford the, the dispensaries, which I don't blame him. It's so expensive.
0: Well, and all you guys are, you know, and everybody you're talking about are people who are, you know, who are older and who might not be, you know, might not exactly. want to be on the illicit market. Right. right. Exactly. And they don't want to, like, what are you going to do? Go on Facebook and ask people if they, you know, where right. do I buy weed? and you know, I go to the, I go to the state house and it's a lot of the same people and they're looking up the price of weed.com to, to figure out how much it should cost. And so, right. you know, that's a real thing. And I know why part of why legalization is such a big deal, you know, because not only can you grow, you know, your two plants and you can give it away to people mm-hmm. in addition, you know, and you, you're also can be a patient and a caregiver. Um, but then also being able to teach other people. Right. You know, and sort of pass it along. And that's the really cool part Uh, because it is, you know, and it's not all the dispensaries fault. You know, like you said, they've got to grow a wide range of stuff. Right. They're overregulated. You know, Mm -hmm. the state hasn't really figured it out. And I'll ask you what you think about that (laughs) after. But, you know, this is kind of part of what the culture is. And you're somebody who came in reluctantly. Right. At best. And you still found your way to the same part of the culture that all the old hippies have done as far as sharing with patients you know, giving it out to people, teaching them how to grow, giving mm-hmm. them seeds, giving them clones. I think it's just part of the, part of the plant and part of the culture that well, the culture becomes is- part of you, whether you are, are, you know, thinking it's going to come or not. Well, the culture
1: is, is, is amazing. I mean, it's not the, 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 the homeless, um, jobless. I'll do anything for a weed, you know, for weed, you know, uh, you know, let me paint your Porsche green, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, for for I can get enough weed for the weekend, you know, it just the culture, you know, is so inclusive. You know what I mean? You've got doctors, you've got lawyers, you've got all different types of all walks of life that are bound to each other by this by this one plant. And frankly once I started smoking I was like, why is this illegal? Why was this illegal for so long? This is stupid. (laughs) <laughs> right. You know, like, let's make this legal and, you know, let's make alcohol illegal because alcohol does a hell of a lot more damage than weed ever did. You know, it just, you know, alcohol kills every major cell in your body from your toenails to your hair and all the way in between. And, you know, the worst thing you've got to worry about weed is getting the munchies.
0: <laughs> right right you know which that's a uh yeah like you said the the events and kind of the culture and the community is really is really really nice to see because i know you know i've got so many different friends you know that i've made through cannabis you know including mm-hmm. you right you know and like we're two people who you know i'm sure voted for different people for president last time around you I'm know i'm pretty and, sure we did <laughs> probably will. we both wear different kind of red hats yeah you know um But the, you know, like you said, you're reckoning with the politics of it. Right. You know, and kind of where you're at now as far as like, oh, shit, I was lied to this whole time. Right. You know, That's how I
1: feel, too. I felt like I wasn't, I was deceived. Yeah. I was deceived. I was on somebody's agenda that wasn't giving me all the information and all the facts. Mm You know what I mean? If we can make this something scary and make this, you know, demonize it. Then all the Republicans will step in line and all and all the all the uh, conservatives will step in line and they'll preach. All the to parents, these, anybody oh, who's yeah. afraid of
0: it. You know, fear's a powerful motivator. Oh, absolutely.
1: And as long as we kept it away from them, for they never knew what it was, then we could keep them in fear. Mm-hmm. And coming from, you know, I mean and you know, I was a staunch opponent of it. I was like, absolutely, you know, we should, we should, you know, it should be le- illegal. You know, what does anybody need this plant for, anyways? Until I cut back two thirds on the on the opioids I was taking, and I was taking a lot of opioids, and I was like, this is insane. Yeah. I, along that time, I met this doctor. He was an o is an OD, a doctor of osteopath. Um, and his name was Dr. Dustin Sulak from Maine. And he was like, people that take opioids and cannabis products need twenty to eighty percent less opioids in their treatment. They find that they don't need to have the increases that that opioids alone have, that they don't they can get by on far less. And he was the one, anytime you take a can uh, an opioid product, I should be taking a cannabis product with that. And that changed wow. my life. And I was like, you know, two-thirds of the amount of narcotics I was taking, I'm, you know, and I'm off of them. And I feel great. great. I'm alert.
0: I'm, yeah. Having know, cannabis, like you said, having a doctor think about it as a supplemental thing that's enhancing the power of the opioid so you don't need as much of it. Right. You know, and I know he's become pretty famous as a medical cannabis doctor. Yeah, he has. You so. know, now. And, um, you know, thankfully. Absolutely. I think he's,
1: we need to underparn
0: well, so how do you, you know, you're somebody who talks to, and we mentioned, you know, you're up there in Franklin County, former mm-hmm. farmer and former, you know, and a veteran, mm-hmm. you know, and somebody who's over the age of 50, you know, and on disability, you check a lot of the boxes of who politicians say they care about, right? you know, so, and especially conservatives, you know, right. you know, so how, what's the reception that you get, you know, and I, I think of it more as a generational thing than a political so thing. Too. You know, and so what's the reception that you get and what's the most effective argument for you when you talk to people about about how it's impacted you? I tell my story um, because
1: if you go in and you you try to muscle them and say, oh, this is bad, you know, we're, you know, cannabis is good and cannabis, you got to let them make up their own mind. Conservatives want to make up their own mind on stuff after they've been spoon fed the information. (laughs) Yeah. and uh right wrong or indifferent they'll they'll eat whatever you you know most people will eat whatever you serve them and uh and you know they were served a pack of lies and you know when it came to cannabis yeah and uh you know it was i've talked to a couple of my representatives and i don't tell them you know I tell them my story and I'm like, you know, this is how I grew up. This is, you know, what, you know, what I believe in. And this is is uh, is unacceptable now because, it, you know, the research, as little as it is, is coming back and saying this stuff isn't dangerous. This stuff is actually helping people. You know, Israel Israel is doing a lot of research. On on uh, on CBD and and THC and all types of the, um, of the, the cannabinoids in, in in cannabis, and you know the the um, the Israeli army. If you have a traumatic brain injury, or uh, get blown up, or get a shockwave from a, a missile or a bomb or anything, they immediately give you uh, cannabis um, to. Uh, to to help your neurons uh, in your brain. Uh, and they say that so that, that helps protect the brain. And you listen to people that say that NFL football players with all their traumatic brain injuries, that they and all the and all the, the trauma to their bodies, they should be, they should be taking cannabis. Yet the The doctors are are so uneducated about this. I had to get educated on my own because my doctor knew nothing about it. You know what I mean? He didn't know what type of a dose to give me. The other thing I found was freedom. Like with cannabis, there's not one that says at 6 o'clock you got to take this pill and this much of that pill. uh, You can
0: smoke as much as you need to get the symptoms alleviated. Right. The <laughs> yep. As long as you got enough of it, right? Right. You know, that's the only that's the only factor. You know, you can make it your you can make it into edibles if you want. Right. You know, you can vaporize it, mm-hmm. you know, you can have concentrates and dabs. You know, and like you said, you can kind of choose your own treatment. Right. Which is uh, I think what people like and you know, start feeling pain, take a hit. Right. You know, maybe it's every twenty minutes for some people. Yeah. You know, but it helps them, you know, keep it kind of at ease.
1: You know, I, I, I technically smoke Uh, in the nighttime when my back's bothering me the most. But I know people that smoke from the time they get up to the time they go to bed, and it's their only form of symptom relief in this age of opioid scare and epidemic. Doctors aren't giving out painkillers, and we have people in pain. And this helps pain. It helps my pain. My wife can actually have to help me downstairs to my basement, and I'll smoke some concentrate, And be able to walk up on my own. Wow. And yeah, it's that dramatic. That's in 15 minutes time. Yep. I go from you know needing needing assistance to to being able to do it on my own. That's 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 groundbreaking stuff. And it's this little plant that we think is, you know what I mean? It's so easy to grow. It's a freaking weed.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. You know, anybody really can can do it. You know, you know,
1: everybody can grow weed. But there's only a select a few that can grow good wheat.
0: <laughs> that's but, right.
1: But uh, you know, but if you if you put your mind to it and and you do the reading and the research on it, there's no reason why you can't grow your own medication and not be shackled by by big pharma. You know, I, eventually I'm going to be getting off the opioids, and you know how freeing that's going to be. You know, like right now I'm a slave to them. I have. I check my pockets two or three times before I leave the house to make sure I have enough painkillers for the day. Now how obsessive compulsive is that? Yeah. You know, and just, I can carry a cannabis product like a vape pen with me and boom, boom, boom. I keep it right in my car. And I don't have to worry about smoking and uh, you know, I don't, I don't smoke in my car, but I know a lot of people do. and. Just because you smoke marijuana doesn't mean that you're going for pass out every time. You're going for symptom relief most of the time. You just, you know, I don't want to get so buzzed that I can't function, but I want to get enough into me so that my pain is gone Or, or at least manageable.
0: Have you tried, I mean, you know, you've got serious needs for severe pain. Is, have you tried CBD? Does CBD do it for you, or a combination, or?
1: I found that you know? the THC works the best. Yeah. A heavy, a heavy dose of THC, usually from an indica, is what helps me most at night. I have a hard time sleeping because of the pain. You know, the other thing is these opioids. I, I recently, I lost my son this summer to an opioid overdose. Now, he was addicted to the same things that I'm on and that the doctors are giving me freely. And he died from that. And that's scary. Here I am taking the same type of painkillers, opioids, that killed my son. And I take it without a a care in the world or a a second thought. And that's painful. You know, I don't want to say that I'm against opioids because I'm not. I guess the abuse of opioids, and, you know, they talk about this. And they say after a 30-day prescription of, of Percocet, 30 people out of 100 will be addicted. Out of a 60-day, um, you know, um, prescription, 65% will be addicted out of 100. And out of 90, 85% will be addicted after after eight, after 90 days of a prescription of opioids. That's ludicrous. That's crazy. You know, and then what are we doing? We're, we're shutting them right off. We're not even tapering them down. We're like, oh, you had too many. We're going to shut you off. We're making drug addicts.
0: We're well, making illicit drug addicts. And imagine you got a detox in prison like, yeah. you know, like my friend. Yeah. You know, that's a talk about a hard, I mean, mentally coming back from <laughs> that even, you know. And that seems like a big, a big part of this, which, you know, it's tough with the psychology because there is X amount of evidence that, you know, schizophrenia can be enhanced Mm -hmm. if you have conditions or, but I think in general, cannabis is usually a mood elevator. I
1: think so. You
0: know, and people using it for anti-anxiety, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think that we accept that as being, you know, society maybe doesn't accept that completely yet. You know, the idea that it's okay to, to smoke a joint and lift your mood. Um, Even if, you know, it's fine to go have a beer at lunchtime or, you know, go have a margarita at lunchtime or something like that. Um, You know, we're still kind of getting there. But that idea of medical cannabis for mental health. Right. You know, I think it'll be a while till we get there. But it's done with PTSD. Right.
1: You know, PTSD. And we have we have our military coming back. And, you know, it's 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 an unseen injury. It's a battlefield injury. PTSD is not, a, is not an illness or a, uh, a, uh, a disorder. It's an injury.
0: Direct causation.
1: Direct causation. And the way we're treating our military is we're filling them full of opioids and pills and antipsychotics and all kinds of crap when they could be really helped with a little bit of cannabis.
0: Right. And are you more open to the idea because of your experiences with cannabis now? The idea of you know psilocybin and mushrooms or MDMA or LSD—not for everybody necessarily—but as you know, as a PTSD thing, I think is yeah. there's some research happening with that. Is that something that you're more open to now that you might not have been before? Or I think so. You know, is that still a,
1: a? I think so, but I'm 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 not ready for it for me. You know, I mean, I was I was looking at. Um, at ayahuasca and people taking ayahuasca and walking away without opioid addictions mm. and after a three-day treatment of ayahuasca. I was like, this is amazing. You know, we got to do research on these things. Some of these plant-based uh, uh,
0: medications that we're getting
1: and you know,
0: yeah, Kratom, right? People yeah. are, that's another one. Kratom, right? There's a lot of you know, anecdotal, you know, discussion, but no, yeah. you know, no regulation. And I don't think it's really being studied, you know, in the U.S. at least.
1: It's not being studied. And we need to study this. You know, maybe we have a whole, nature has a whole pharma, you know, has a whole drugstore. And, uh, you know, all we have to do is find them. Mm. Is find out what plants are given.
0: Mm. Yeah, do you th- <laughs> it's funny thinking back to, uh, you know, you in, the, you in the 80s, you know, talking like a hippie about natural plant remedies and, oh. and, and cannabis, and it's kind of a, you know, it's like the Rocky Four, you know, thing. If I can change, then you can change, Absolutely. and we all can change together. Absolutely. You know?
1: <laughs> you know, cannabis has really opened my eyes up to, I was pretty much egocentric for the longest time, and I thought about my pain. My ailment, my my suffering, and when I started with the cannabis, I was like, I can help other people that are doing the same thing I'm doing, and it's given me friends. It's given me a culture. My wife doesn't smoke, and my my son smokes. My son's autistic, and um, you know, um, and he he's come right out of his shell with smoking. Plus, you know, it's something that we can do together and, you know, and and talk. You know, autism, you know, strikes the conversation from you. You know, when it's usually, I'm fine, and that's it, to having a half-hour conversation with my son, it's unlocked the communication between me and my son. Mm. And it's been nothing but a blessing. Um, And you don't have to, you know, you you certainly can smoke until you're unaware of your surroundings and unaware of what's going on. But you can also just smoke for symptom relief and work out your regular day and you know, still take care of your errands, still take care of your, your day-to-day living and not being peed or struck on the couch and you know, it all depends on what you want and what's good for you. And you know, I, I think with cannabis, we're taking the, the amount and the concentrate, and, you know, the concentration of THC right out of the doctor's hands and giving it to the, to the patient, which is empowering. Yeah. It's very empowering for the patient to be able to say, I can smoke this or this or this, and I'll get the same relief as if I take this, this, or this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's good. And that's, that's where we need to be going. You know, we need to empower the patient. You know, the doctors need to, you know, to research this. And, you know, I think anytime, instead of giving a painkiller, they should give a prescription for an opioid. Uh, not an opioid, but a prescription for a, uh, for a cannabis product. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, anytime start you know, with
0: CBD before you go to yeah, Percocet. Yeah,
1: start with CBD before you go to Percocet.
0: Right. There's a big. There's a long ways in between those Absolutely. two. Absolutely. The idea of and getting CBD there is
1: legal in all the states. You know.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, we need to make cannabis legal. Um, you know, I think once it's legal, our war on drugs is just going to go away because there won't be one. Right. And the thousands and the millions and billions of dollars spent on on eradicating you know marijuana it's the most asinine thing i ever heard of now i was i was the one that was voting to give him more money you know yep and
0: uh you're yeah. certainly you've certainly you've certainly done your service to you know to the cause as an advocate yeah you know now to uh to you know make up and then some you know if there was any uh if there was any thought about about that but yeah this was great um Andrew, thank you very much. Oh, thank special, you, for having Special, special to share this. There's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in here, and we'll uh, we'll get it out there widely. Oh, you know? I appreciate
1: it. I appreciate the chance that you you wanted to hear my story, and uh, thank you very much for listening.
0: Whew. All right, thank you all for listening. That was uh, that was really special. Um, you guys heard my guarantee up front. If you did not laugh out loud and and uh, well up at some point during that interview. Hit me up. I will refund your subscription completely. Whatever you paid for, I will refund it. Um, But I want to thank you all for tuning in. Starting in February, this podcast will come out every two weeks. Subscribe on Apple. Look for it on SoundCloud. Look at the vermontawanna.com website become a subscriber to the newsletter, and of course, follow Vermont Awana on social media. We'll be coming back with more, including some hot political news coming up next week on probably Tuesday. So stay tuned. Thank you all for your support. Become subscribers. Check out the website. And above all, make sure to elevate the state. Now, okay.